Do you ever get sucked into a really good book? The characters are so rich, they're endearing, you find yourself becoming attached to them, the storyline is so compelling that when it ends, you're sad. You're, you're curious, well, gosh, I wonder what happens next. You're, you're trying to imagine these characters living the rest of their lives and going on to do other things. Sometimes a good epilogue helps with that. Sometimes the author will include at the end, all right, well, here's what so-and-so went on to do and become, and you know, this thing happened later, and um, I was thinking about... Uh, the book and the movie um, Hidden Figures has a, has a good, helpful epilogue at the end uh, to tell you what all of those women went on to do with the rest of their careers and their lives and all their additional accomplishments. Um, it, it helps tie up some loose ends and helps give you a, a, a picture of what continues to happen and go on. In a sense, the last chapter of John's Gospel is an epilogue. The main part of the story John was telling concluded with the resurrection. Uh, At the end of chapter 20, it even seemed like that would make a good end to the book, did it not? Uh, These last two verses of chapter 20 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he, and he could have stopped there. That would have been a good conclusion. That's led some commentators to try to argue without merit that he really did stop there and that someone else came along later and added chapter 21. But no, chapter 21 is very much the product of John, just like the rest, and it functions like a good epilogue. It gives us a very good sense of what's going to happen next. What's up with these characters? What are they going to go on to do? John captures how he and the other disciples benefited from some additional time with Jesus before his ascension, before his returning back to the Father. And the way they benefited, the important message they took away from their encounter with Jesus what they needed as they embarked on their mission, well, it's the same thing that you and I need as we embark on ours. So let me ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. This epilogue of sorts, if you will, John chapter 21, the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. 
That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to, Pe- said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon, Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. May God bless his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Jesus, just like you were pleased to reveal yourself that morning on the shore of Galilee to those disciples, would you be pleased to reveal yourself to us here in Orangeburg this morning? Would you show us your glory? Would you reveal to us what it was that the disciples needed for their mission, which is what we need for ours? And would you, Holy Spirit, grant power to that revelation? That it would sink deep down into our hearts and to our minds. That you would give us the faith to believe it. And that by believing it, we would be changed by it. We ask for this powerful help and intervention in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So a good epilogue will often tie up loose ends. Maybe there were some details in your book or in your movie that didn't quite all get resolved. And so maybe the author will mention what happened there. That's certainly the case with what we're going to look at next week from part of this epilogue as it pertains to Peter. Peter who had this terrible three times denial of Jesus A big loose end is what is the status of his relationship with Jesus? We're going to look at that next week. Sometimes epilogues will often give a good one last summary of the the big idea of the book. One last reiteration, either of the, the moral of the story or something important the author wants you to take away. And that's certainly true of our verses today. If the disciples need convincing again of something, post-resurrection and pre-ascension, and if we could benefit from that same convincing, which we can, it would be to be convinced once again of their continued need of the presence of Jesus and the continued provision that that presence provides. It's been such a huge paradigm shift for the disciples. 
to get used to the idea that Jesus was going to leave them, he was going away, but that he would also still be with them, he promised, as he sends his spirit to dwell in them, to empower them. Frankly, that's a lot to take in and to process, to to wrap their little disciple brains around and try to understand. Jesus has been trying to help them process this for quite a while now. Back in the upper room, in this farewell discourse, he's telling them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He was going to come to them in the person of his Holy Spirit. We saw in the account of his Easter night appearance, how he he breathed on them, symbolizing, reminding them of the promise of his Holy Spirit coming to them. And, And today, trying once again to drive home the need for his presence and the reality of his presence in the days to come. Yes, he is about to physically leave them, but in another sense, he will never leave them. He will always be present with them. So if we could sum up the truth, the big idea of what he's trying to drive home with them, it'd be something like this. The the powerful provision of Jesus' perpetual presence. He's going to be present with them. That will always be the case. We'll be perpetual, not occasional. Not, I'll be with you up to a certain point and then on your own. No, always. And in that presence, he's going to continue to exert his supernatural and divine power in and through their lives. And that power is very much needed. It's a much needed provision for them. They'd be lost without it. And so what I want to do this morning is try to unpack that big idea in these verses. And so as we get into these verses, what we're dealing with here is yet another appearance of the risen Christ to the disciples. Now, each of these appearances is so very valuable. But it's easy for us to get distracted and need to move on to other things with all of our technology and so much information at our disposal. It might be easy to say, okay, okay, we get it. He's alive. He's appearing. Let's get to the rest of the story. But the rest of the story hinges on and absolutely depends on the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to have these appearances as corroborating proof that it happened. See, the empty tomb is wonderful. But by itself, it's not enough. The empty tomb by itself is not enough. Because all it takes is one skeptic to say, all right, tomb's empty, that's great. Where's the body? What'd you do with it? No, see, we need these appearances. We need an empty tomb, and then we need the one who was in the tomb to appear and show us that he's alive. And so John counts three main appearances. He tells us in verse 14, he he calls it the third time he appeared, specifically to the disciples, plural, But we know that Jesus was quite busy between the resurrection and the ascension, and he was appearing to lots of folks. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about uh, a post-resurrection appearance that was to more than 500 people at one time. And that's important. 
See, you get that on the record. You say, look, there's tons of eyewitnesses. If you don't believe this story, if you find this hard to believe, just go ask one of them. Go ask a bunch of them. See, when you tell us there are that many eyewitnesses to this, it makes it much more difficult and unlikely that this could have been successfully pulled off as as a ruse or a stunt or a lie. So right off the bat, don't miss the forest for the trees. How vitally important to the historical record these resurrection appearances are. So they're important in that regard, but they're also important for their instructive value, what Jesus is trying to drive home with the disciples and by extension with us. They needed his continued presence. Now, why is that? Why do they so desperately need his continued presence? Why do we so desperately need it? It's because of who they are. Who the disciples are, it's because of who we are. Look at verse 2. They're listed for you. There are seven at this appearing. And these are the people that Jesus was dealing with. Depending upon to get his mission going, to get the church started. So here, here's, here's who we've got. Peter, I've already mentioned he's the big denier. We've got Thomas. Last week we saw was adamantly disbelieving and doubting. We've got Nathaniel. We haven't heard anything from Nathaniel since all the way back in chapter 1. He's the somewhat superstitious one. Like he was just blown away that Jesus knew some small detail about him standing under a fig tree somewhere. And his mind was just, oh, he was gone. (laughs) Um, We've got the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the author, they're not mentioned like that in this gospel by their father's name. But they are mentioned that way in the other gospels where we learn about them, where we learn about their very ambitious mama. She wanted some power and some prestige for her boys, and we don't see the sons objecting to that request. It seems they've got a little bit of ambition with these two, and So those five guys are listed by name, and two others, apparently not even important enough to have their names mentioned. And this is the motley crew that Jesus is sending out. All his eggs are in this sad little basket. And we're an extension of that motley crew. All of their failings and foibles, all of ours, We're in desperate need of Jesus' powerful presence to overcome those weaknesses, to overcome that lack of ability. We are in desperate need. And and we see the lack of ability on the disciples' part with their little fishing trip here. All night long, not a single fish. And Jesus calls out to them uh, that they don't know yet that it's him. It's either in the dimness of that early morning or the distance away, or it could be another of those times where Jesus is providentially keeping them from seeing that it's him, recognizing him just yet. He calls out. Uh, This says children. Probably colloquially this term was better like, hey, fellas, hey, guys, 
Do you have any fish? If you've got the New American Standard, it really does a better job here because the way that this is worded, it's one of those asking a question where you expect a negative answer. It's more like, you don't have any fish, do you? That's really what Jesus is saying here. He knows. He knows they don't have any fish. He's probably the reason that they don't have any fish. (laughs) He probably made sure that they were going to have a fruitless night of fishing so he could make sure to get his point across. See, this isn't the first such fishing encounter he's had with them. Uh, Luke 5, uh, way back at the start of Jesus' ministry unlike this one at the end, when he's calling them to follow him, he takes them on another fishing trip. It's worth our time to, to turn there. So if, you've, if you want to swipe over there, if you want to turn the physical pages, it'll also be on the screen, I think. Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's, yeah, so Tiberias, Gennesaret, Galilee. It's all the same lake, Okay. Here's where they are. Verse 2, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they'd taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they'd brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. One of the commentators I was reading astutely pointed out, the disciples never catch a single fish in all of the Gospels without Jesus' help. Not a single one. A few of the other commentators really want to say, oh, well, these two fishing trips, they're the same. Luke just put his at the beginning, and John put his toward the end, but they're really the same. And I'm not buying that. Jesus knew how hard it was for this lesson, for this reality, to sink into the disciples' thick heads and to sink into our thick independent heads. He knew it had to be driven home again in a very similar fashion. Right? Here's the truth. You can't succeed without my help. I'm about to send you out. You're about to take my glorious gospel to the whole world. Don't you dare think for a moment you can do it on your own power. Don't you dare think for a minute you can do it without an utter dependence on me. It's just driving home the the truth from John 15, 5 again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
You're fishing on your own? Zero fish. Depending upon me, enough to sink two boats, enough to break a net. Or at least it should have broken the net this time if Jesus hadn't prevented it from breaking. So it is in this second encounter that John records, this fishing trip number two. You don't have any fish, do you? No. Put your net on the right side and you will find some. Now, why do they do it? They don't know that it's Jesus on the shore. Why do they follow this advice? Yet more unsolicited fishing advice. Isn't that all fishing advice? Well, either out of hope they do it or out of desperation or maybe they're just too tired to even argue at this point. Right? It would, it would be easier just to throw the net in the water than to explain, let's just do it. Or, or maybe, maybe they're compelled to do it. But when they do it, instant success. When Jesus intervenes, when he is dependent upon, when he is taken at his word, instant success. You can count on this. Now, one caveat. It will be success as he defines it, but it will be success. It might not necessarily be worldly success. It will definitely be spiritual success. It will definitely be kingdom success. And even that will be as he defines it. We might think here at Trinity Church that we're following him, that we're depending on him. And so, Jesus, we're expecting you to cause the, the doors just to blow off this place. We're expecting just to burst at the seams. And that may or may not happen according to his will. But we will succeed. He will succeed. And while we might not be able to predict the specifics of what that success will look like, we will always know two things for certain. That guaranteed success, number one, will be all about his glory. And it will also be about our good. Always, every time. The perpetual presence of Jesus will always powerfully provide for his glory and for our good. John sees this instant success with the fish. And you can almost picture his, his eyeballs getting his largest saucers with recognition. I've seen this before. It's Jesus. It's got to be. This happened before and it was him. And the light bulb flips on. The, the commentators all point out in looking at these disciples how John's always the one with the quicker insight. He's processing things faster. He's believing things faster. Just at the empty tomb. He saw the empty tomb. He connected the dots. It says he believed. So he's the one quick to believe, but Peter's always the one quick to act. <laughs> Shoot first, ask questions later. 
So as soon as John announces his conclusion that he's come to, Peter's in the water, headed toward the shore. So Peter swims to shore. The rest are dragging this huge catch behind the boat. They get to the shore, and Jesus is present with them. And y'all, some of these details, some of these simple little details are so powerful. Have you ever experienced that? How some little, like a song will come on the radio, and you are just instantly transported to another place in time. Or maybe it's the smell of something cooking or baking and you're back in your grandmother's house or something or it's a it's a smell of a perfume and it reminds you of a loved one or something these details can be very powerful and I think Jesus knows this and he's using this here he's trying to jog the disciples memory the whole setting where are they the sea of Galilee so many things happened on the sea and on the seashore over their three years together. He's trying to jog their memories of of how needy they are, of how Jesus has been present with them, of how he's provided for them. This charcoal fire, it's only mentioned one other place in John, John 18, 18. There was a charcoal fire outside the house of the high priest where Peter was denying the Lord. On this charcoal fire are fish and bread. Remember on the shore of Galilee, the fish and the bread. They, they had these thousands that needed to be fed, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it without the abundant provision that came with Jesus being present with them. <laughs> 153 fish. Now, there's a lot of very interesting reading out there about why it's 153 fish. Some of it is bizarre. Like, I almost want to tell you about some of it, but I don't want to waste any time. Let me just tell you what it really means. Think about 153. You've got a 1, and you've got a 5, and you've got a 3. And when you put those numbers together, you get 153. And that means there were a lot of fish. When Jesus gets involved, there's abundance. There's abundance. Disciples, he's saying, when I send you out on mission, I've got all these details here for you. I'm trying to remind you, stimulate the thinking. I'm sending you out. And as I send you out, I want you to expect more of the same. More of your great need. (laughs) More of my presence and abundant provision. I want to finish by pointing out one striking difference between these two fishing trips. Lots of similarities, but one very important difference. And it has to do with Peter, and it has to do with Peter's response. His response to the powerful presence of Jesus. That first trip back in Luke 5, what is Peter's response? 
How does Peter respond to the powerful presence of Jesus? It makes him incredibly uncomfortable. He's repulsed by Jesus' presence. He wants him to leave. Get away from me, Jesus. Depart. But at the second trip, the second enormous haul of fish, how very different. Peter sees the powerful presence of Jesus and he can't get to him fast enough. That doesn't make any sense at all. Think about this. Luke 5, that early encounter, Peter's just coming to know Jesus, just coming to know the powerful presence of Jesus, and he's so uncomfortable because the glorious presence of Jesus shines a white, hot light on who Peter is. He sees himself in that light. He says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's what glory does. Glory is very revealing in that way. It happened to Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah 6. God's glorious presence fills the temple and Isaiah says, Oh no! I'm a goner. This is terrible. I'm, I'm unholy. I'm filthy. I need cleansing. So why in the world at this second fishing trip does Peter jump in the water and swim to Jesus as fast as he can? Why does he do that when now he has even more reason to see himself as a sinful and a wicked man, one who has three times denied the Lord? Peter is admittedly not the sharpest tool in the shed. But somewhere over the course of these three years with Jesus, he's come to see and even internalize not just the power of Jesus, but also the grace of Jesus. And he's begun to see that everything with Jesus comes in abundance to boatloads of fish. A net almost bursting with 153 large fish. It's not just fish that comes in abundance. Friends, you and I will always, always need the powerful presence and provision of Jesus in a multitude of ways, but absolutely when it comes to his grace. The more sinful we discover ourselves to be when we did those things that we think, how in the world could I ever do something like that? The more sinful we see ourselves, the more amazing his sacrifice becomes in our eyes. The more amazing grace becomes to us because even though Jesus should refuse us, he should turn us away. He should be the one repulsed and say, get out! Get away! But instead he says, come. Just like that morning on the shore, he says, come, come eat some breakfast. Come, let me, let me serve you again. 
I've washed your feet. I've died for you. Let me, let me cook you some breakfast. It's easy. And so because of this oh-so-abundant and amazing grace of Jesus, we're no longer repulsed by his presence. We no longer want to say, oh, Jesus, get away. Get away. I'm too sinful. We don't tell him to get away. We don't try to get away. Now we can't get to him fast enough. Father, would you take that reality? Indeed, all these realities, how desperately we need your